Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. When we make our way towards the end of the Lord's Prayer and towards the end of our study in the Heidelberg Catechism, and as we continue in our discussion, we understand that it's our Lord who takes away our sins, heals our sins, and it's an exhortation for us to live as a community as those who are forgiven sinners redeemed in Christ. And so that we know that we're called to trust in Christ, see our redemption in Christ. And then we ask that question then of what does it really look like to be in this kingdom and part of this kingdom as there's a call to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so as we consider this, we'll look at uh, this question and answer in light of what we find with the catechism where we have take away our sins and then avoiding sin as we live uh, consistently as God's redeemed. And so let's begin with take away our sins. When the Catechism is instructing us and teaching us in the Lord's Prayer of the significance of what this request is. Uh, it's a reminder that every day we need the one-time work of Christ. Uh, this isn't something that's optional. It's a reminder that we continually need Christ. It's not that we say, well, I was a sinner at one day, and praise be to God, I'm no longer a sinner. The Catechism's reminding us that continually uh, we are those who struggle with sin and need to understand the great redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. And as we go on, it's that reminder that as sinners, we need a, a, a daily, uh, we, we need this redemption to continually uh, be put before us. It's not that we need another redemption, but we need to continually, continually recognize that this redemption uh, is ours and we always need this redemption. And so this is not just to remind us of past sins being covered. I mean, I certainly can see in, in James when he talks about anointing with oil, it seems that's the implication that someone's on their deathbed they're not able to let go and, and go and be with their Lord. And so the anointing with oil is that reminder that the Spirit is present. Christ Jesus has really covered. And they need to let go and stop fighting in this age and go to be with their Lord. And so it's that reminder that not only those past sins are covered, whatever they may be, but it's that understanding that we continually, continually need this forgiveness, that it is guaranteed, it is ours. It's something that with Christ's one-time work, it has been done. And so what, whatever goes on in the future, uh, those sins are covered. Now again, we'll, we'll get into the reality of, well, does this mean we just push the boundaries of God's grace? And, and obviously, hopefully not. Uh, hopefully that's not our desire. But as we consider the wording of the catechism, it, it talks about the blood of Christ Jesus. And as it talks about the, the blood of Christ Jesus, it uses this word of uh, this word that it's 
credited to us or imputed to us. Or when we talk about sin or the redemption of Christ, we speak of a double imputation. That's fancy language, but it's really not so fancy. But it is significant. It's why I call it to your account. Impute just simply means credit. So it's basically like putting money on someone's books or paying off credit. It's, it's making sure that whatever deficit was there, everything's paid in full. So when we talk about a double imputation, it means that we are credited with the good works of Christ. So that's the first imputation. His good works become our good works. And when we talk about the, the second side of this imputation, it means that our sins are credited to Christ. Now, it's not to say Christ is a sinner, but this is why we need the God-man, right? The one to go before us, to take our redemption, and to be in such a place that he can take our sins away. And so this, <clears throat> excuse me, this double imputation is very significant uh, because if we don't have this twofold transaction, uh, we are in a world of trouble. And so it's important to understand our Christ's good work is credited to us as if we have done it. Our sins are taken away and credited to Christ, and he takes them away in his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, and ultimately confirmed in that resurrection. And so what, what do we earn from this? Because again, we, we have to understand. I mean, we can overreact to Rome and say, we don't want to say we're saved by works. But we, we got to be careful in how we say this. Uh, we're not saved by our works. I, I don't earn, or none of you earn your salvation. But we are saved by works. We're saved by the work of Christ. And so what we earn then is we earn the reward of heaven because of what Christ Jesus has done. So when we're praying this request, we're continually reminded we have forfeited the blessings of heaven. We have forfeited our, our worthiness of being loved by God. We are those who struggle in sin. We are those who need the work of Christ. But again, it's that reminder that that redemption only comes in Christ. And so this, this language, we may say, well, it sounds a little fancier. It sounds a little theological, but, but it's important. Our sins credited to Christ. He's not a sinner. His righteous works credited to us. And this request is continually reminding us of that reality. And so what is John teaching us then in 1 John? What we notice, as John writes, he says, My little children. Now when we hear this, we, we may think that maybe this congregation is made up of a very young, young little children, right? Uh, and, and that there's, there's no adults in the congregation. But, but that's not the point here. What, what we learn, is, first of all, is John is older when he writes this. That's the implication. Uh, he's just simply what we would say, maybe a father in the faith. Uh, someone we look to who's gone before us, who has lived a long and faithful life in the best sense of that word, uh, not in the sense that he's saved by his faithfulness. I kind of hate the whole federal vision controversy. I feel like you have to overqualify everything. But he's faithful in the good sense of the word, in the sense that he really wants to live for the Lord. Uh, something that, that we should desire. We should desire to be faithful, right? Uh, it's not that we want to be justified by our faithfulness, but we want to be faithful to God. We, we want to truly live our lives before his face. And one of the things, when you hear of this older man writing to a younger congregation, what is he saying? He's basically saying, I've been through different seasons of life. 
I've witnessed different things, been through the highs, been through the lows. Here's the reality. Let, let me pass on to you the significance of this faith. And so uh, it's basically a presentation that here is someone who's writing a letter who's about to graduate in the sense of moving from this age to the age to come. So as John writes this, he also writes this following the example of Christ. And so it's not just that John's old as he writes this, but we also have an echo back to what Christ says, where we have Christ as he interacts with his disciples. Uh, we find that he's the one that, as he washes the disciples' feet, he refers them as his children, right? He, he has that personal relationship as a rabbi. Uh, as Christ is, is saying this, it's communicating that fam familial relationship. So it's communicating teacher to student or teacher to disciple. So what John's communicating then is, A, I'm experienced. B, I'm an apostle, a, a teacher. And C, I'm seeing you as, as my congregation, as people that believe the same things that, that I believe. Uh, we can also think of John 21 verse 5 where Jesus asks the children if they've caught any fish. And again, these two passages are pretty significant in John's gospel, as John's also the author of that gospel. Because you have in John 13, the setting of Christ going to the cross, John 21, the resurrection of Christ. And so when, when John writes this to the church, he's talking about this definitive redemption we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can't Minimize this. John understands the significance of the resurrection, not when it happened, but certainly now when he writes this letter, he understands the significance of Christ's resurrection. It doesn't just guarantee our resurrection, but it guarantees our redemption. If Christ is still in the grave, we are a people without hope. And that's the reality of it. We may as well go home. There is no Christian faith. There is no overcoming of death. There is no overcoming of sin. And so just in, in this designation of my little children, the statement here, we can think of Christ, Rabbi, we can think of John being the apostle, writing to a church and encouraging them. But as he, he writes to the church, he wants us to understand a hypothetical. On the one hand, he's saying, I, I don't want you to sin, right? I mean, this is an honorable desire. We, we, we shouldn't want to sin. We, we shouldn't desire that. And yet we sin with knowing, we sin by our desires, uh, we sin because for whatever reason we think that sin is going to give us more joy than actually living for the glory of God. So again, it's the irrationality of sin, as reformers and uh, theologians have written about, that sin really is irrational. We, we have Christ, we have the beauty of redemption, and yet for whatever reason we, we think that sin is going to give us more joy than our Lord. And so John's saying, listen, my children, I, I don't want you to sin. So he, he wants us to be very clear. He's not laying out here some sort of a radical grace. You can live however you want, do whatever you want, whenever you want, and, and there's no consequence. Now he's saying, my, my desire is that, that you don't sin. That's what we should want to do. But he says, but if you do sin. So here's, here's an important thing, that John's laying out the reality that even in this congregation, there are those who are going to potentially sin. All of us are going to potentially sin. This is the point of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Forgive us our debts. Not forgive us our past debts. Forgive us our debts. 
In other words, we are those who continue to stack up our deficit. And so, Lord, continue to forgive these very debts. And so this, this if you do sin, isn't something that's just a, a permission that he's giving us. And that's important to understand the context uh, of this letter. It's a reminder that, yes, we, we are going to struggle. Uh, as we struggle, we say, well, then what's the solution? Well, he tells us we have an advocate. This terminology is debated what the advocate means. Uh, some say it's somebody that truly comes alongside uh, because it's not a word that's used commonly in the New Testament. Others say, well, it's, it's just a lawyer who argues the case. Um, there's a variety of, of things going on. What, what I appeal to to try and make this as clear as possible for us before, uh, because I think going down all those different nuances isn't very helpful or encouraging. I think probably the best picture we have is Zechariah 3. And if you remember uh, that scenario, it is a courtroom scene. Uh, you have Satan actually taking the role of prosecution. You have Joshua, the high priest, who's commissioned with uh, rebuilding or, or rededicating the temple. That's what he's charged to do. And you have Satan bringing a series of accusations in the presence of God. This is what the priest says. Look at the man. He's a mess. How can this guy do this job? And, and Joshua offers no defense. He, he hunkers down, hunkers down, and finds the angel of the Lord who stands up and says, I'm going to take his sin upon me. I'm going to give him clean clothing. That's what John's getting at here. That it's not the angel of the Lord who's promising to do this. He's reminding us that we have the one who has done this. Jesus Christ, once for all. He is our advocate. And so it's important to understand he's not our tolerator. He's not our, our guy that we kind of go to when, when we really mess things up. But his advocate is more of a positive relationship, right? It's seeing Christ as the one that, that wants us into heaven. It's not that he's just tolerating us and he'll get us out of another mess. But he wants us. He, he's pulling for us. He's bringing us into heaven, right? So we're, we're seeing this, this advocacy as Christ being the one who's leading us. We can use this sort of as a shepherd motif, and, and maybe we're pushing a little more into the word than what's intended. But, but it's how Scripture presents God, isn't it? That he's a shepherd leading the sheep, bringing us into rest. And then we have it made <coughs> excuse me, more explicit with who Christ is, that he's the ultimate mediator. Because Christ is the one who is a propitiation for our sins. This is the one who makes payment, uh, the one who takes away our sin. And again, this isn't a common word used for propitiation, and so it's argued and it's debated. But when you really look at it in classical Greek language, it does mean the, the gods being angry, a sacrifice being offered to appease the gods. So I, I don't think that our English translations are really pushing the intention of the language in the original Greek. It simply means appeasing the gods. And so when we think about Jesus Christ being the one propitiation, uh, when we speak of propitiation, we're speaking of payment. So atonement, remember, means cover. Propitiation is paying the debt. 
And so it's important to understand who Jesus Christ is. He pays the debt. So anything that is outstanding is settled by our advocate who is in heaven. This is who Jesus Christ is, that one-time payment for our sins. And so when we think about this, it's very clear that Christ takes away our sins. And, and who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's a righteous. He's identified as righteous, as the one uh, who is legally right before the Lord is the intention of this. So as he's our advocate, there, there's nothing wrong with this Christ in any way. He's the one who takes away our sins. He's a righteous one before the throne of grace. And so when, when we think about this declaration, there's this assurance that Christ has done this. Now when we say that he's a propitiation for our sins, but then we have the language that goes on in 2 verse 2. Another controversial statement. That it's not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, Greek here is cosmos. Uh, this is something that's debated. Some say this is a, a sin that's universal in the sense that it's a whole creation uh, that's been redeemed. Uh, others say that this means every single individual in the world uh, receives uh, the blessing and the atoning or payment of Christ Jesus. Um, or it could just be universal in the sense of the nations. Well, if you look at this in the context of 1 John, I think maybe if you look at Romans 8, uh, we can see cosmos used more in the sense of this creation groaning for its fullness. So I think that's something we can appeal to in, in Romans 8. But in John's gospel, John, and also this letter, I'd also argue in his gospel when he speaks of the world and uses this, say, in John 3 and other places. That in John's gospel, when he's using this, he's speaking of a universality in the sense of all the nations. And I don't want to say it's universal in the sense of every single individual receives these blessings uh, because we have Genesis 3.15 and other passages that are very clear uh, that there are those of the Lord and those who are not of the Lord. So as John's writing this, he's giving the assurance, and I would say in an overabundant way, that all nations are those that receive this blessing as they are conscious of taking hold of Christ by faith. How do we take hold of Christ by faith? Well, John answers that in John 3, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so again, this is that consciousness. How do I know Christ is my Christ? Well, I believe he's a righteous one. I believe he's been raised from the dead. I believe he's the one who makes me right before the Lord. He is the one who has established my placement. And so in, in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, right here, we have this assurance of Jesus Christ taking away our sins, uh, being the one who pleads our case, is a righteous redeemer, uh, the one who makes us right with the living God. And so we have that assurance of Christ uh, being the one who takes away our debts. How do we move on then to this assurance of, or as the Catechism reminds us, of avoiding sin? Because a reminder, when you look even at the parables, you're reminded of the great debt that has been taken away from us, and so there's a call for us to forgive others. 
And as we, we hear this, sometimes in our culture and Christianity, we can say forgive and forget. And, and we sort of just say that we just let it all go and we don't think about it all. And, and there's passages where you can look at, say, Psalm 25, verse 7. Where here it's, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Psalm 25, verse 7, right there. It's, don't remember the sins of my youth. The Lord doesn't hold them against us. Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Isaiah 43, 25, same thing. I will remember their sin no more. Psalm 103, verse 12. The Lord removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And in fact, this becomes even stronger. Uh, we can appeal to language in the Lord's kingdom that if one does not forgive, one does not have access to the Lord's kingdom, as Christ himself says in Matthew 6, verse 15. So we hear this and we say, okay, well then, what do we do, say, with a contemporary example that's become rather public uh, with the whole Mars Hill um, uh, scan um, scandal that's transpired and, and that whole podcast that came out with Mark Driscoll. What do we do when, when we look at Mark Driscoll serving, doing public things that certainly are abusive and, and that we have plenty of record of it, but yet we, we look at him also pastoring a church in Arizona. Do we take people from Seattle and say you have to go to that church in Arizona and you just have to forgive and forget? Well, this actually becomes even more complicated because Ursinus appeals to something very similar in his objections, where Ursinus uh, talks about the very ethics of the Apostle Paul, where in his objections it says, well, the Apostle Paul held a grudge where he talks about Alexander the coppersmith and what he has done. And so why is it that Paul's calling attention to Alexander the coppersmith to Timothy when Paul himself is saying that we're supposed to forgive and conduct ourselves in this ethic. So how do we answer this? You think of Paul and Barnabas and that sort of thing. And so when we look at this, we, we got to look at the context. So if anyone brings this to your attention, we look at the context. 2 Timothy 4 verse 14, what does Paul say? Well, Paul, as he writes to Timothy, uh, he is saying, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. So again, you can take this objection and say, see, the Apostle Paul's holding a grudge, taking this personally. But what has happened? Why well, you look at this in the context? Uh, we have the context where uh, this Alexander the coppersmith, where we wonder, well, who is he? And there's speculation. Uh, some appeal to 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, where Paul excommunicates this individual. And so they say, well, maybe it's the same individual that Paul has excommunicated. We think of an Alexander in Acts 19, verse 33 to 34, where Alexander was forbidden from speaking, and maybe he's holding a grudge. Others say we don't really know who this Alexander is. But what has transpired? Well, we find that Paul does state specifically that this individual, this Alexander, is one who has spoken strongly against our message. So this is one who may have been in the church and is no longer in the church and is now outside the church and someone who has spoken against the gospel quite clearly. 
And so when, when Paul is saying this to Timothy, he's saying to Timothy, understand as you travel uh, to Trios, this, this guy may not be someone that you're going to trust and, and want to draw near. Uh, this person is someone that's not going to be uh, very honest with you and he's going to ultimately undermine you. And so when, when Ursinus answers this objection, he says we actually learn some significant things from this. First, Paul is not looking for revenge, right? Paul's not going out trying to get revenge in this individual. He's warning Timothy of this potential problem. Secondly, Paul's not looking to personally inflict punishment on him. Thirdly, Paul is identifying a wicked man who stands against the gospel of Christ. And so uh, Paul is simply looking at, say, Proverbs 22, verse 3, uh, that the prudent see danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer it. And so again, this is understanding that uh, living and discerning what is pleasing unto the Lord. As we think about the, the reality of this, what, what do we think about forgiveness? What does it really mean? Forgiveness, when, when we see this, means to release from a debt. It means to release from an obligation. And we can see where there are consequences that happen in life. Uh, we can think of Cain wandering the earth, David losing his child, Solomon having the kingdom divided. We can think of 1 Corinthians 10 and following with individuals who have actually died as a result of their sin. In fact, when we answer the whole issue of Driscoll and what to do with this issue of spiritual abuse or these sorts of things, uh, the subtle power of spiritual abuse, Johnson uh, and Van Vonderen say the subtle power in the subtle power of spiritual abuse, they say, forgiving someone means you release them from the debt. It does not necessarily mean that you are going to trust them or have a close relationship with them again. And so again, this is one of those things where that forgiveness and restoration are, are two different things. And that's the same thing with Mark Driscoll. I don't think it would be wise in that particular very public scenario, to take people who are in the Seattle church and say you need to move to Arizona and be part of his congregation. The point is, do not hold the grudge or to hold this against him and move on. And so when we look at John, what is John communicating about this reality? Because he's reminding us of who we are in Christ. And as he reminds us of who we are in Christ, uh, we are those who are reminded that as we go on and we look at verses 3 through 6, it seems, if we look at this very superficially, uh, that we are to keep these commandments perfectly. And if we do not keep these commandments perfectly, we are not in Christ. And so we, we look at this and, and we say, well, what, what do we do with this? Especially in chapter 1, where... John says, if someone says he has no sin, he is a liar. So you say, okay, so there's a propitiation, there's a payment for sin, because uh, we may sin, and then we're actually told in chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we are a liar. So, so how does this work? What, what is John fundamentally telling us and exhorting us to do? Well, what John wants us to do, I think, is a significant thing in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
It's a pretty strong statement. And so what John is reminding us, because remember how we started. You know, if we do sin, do not sin. I'm telling you not to sin, or you may not sin, right? So what is John saying is the overall trajectory of our life? The overall trajectory of our life is that we seek to live out the gospel as Christ lived out the gospel. And I think one of the things we learn with Christ and the cross, which is quite a powerful thing, isn't it? Uh, with people mocking him, scolding him, saying all sorts of evil things against him. And Christ says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And you think about that, Christ is telling us something pretty profound. On the one hand, they don't understand the depth of what they're about to fall into and what they're doing. That's one thing. But the other thing Christ is assuring us is that the Father's justice is something far more than we want to endure. And so when, when we read this reminder of forgiveness, release from debt, and, and if you know, we think about, again, that public scenario of Driscoll and those who were warned and you hear their, their stories and the things they've endured and others who talk about other sorts of things they've endured. One of the things that we're reminded is to understand that the Lord will deal with them. Because isn't that what Paul also says about Alexander the coppersmith? May the Lord deal with him. And that's where we, we have to understand who we are. We are not the judges. We are not the executioners. We are those who seek to live faithfully to the Lord. We live before his face. And we trust that the Lord is going to make it all right. And as we understand that, the place where we have to start is where 1 John 2 reminds us. The great debt, we have been released. And as we understand that great debt that we have been released... We've got to understand who we are before Christ. We are those who deserve to receive the Father's justice without any mercy, without anything. And so the reminder here and what our sinus goes on to remind us and exhort us as one of our fathers of the faith is that we need to exercise wisdom as we live this out. But we have to exercise wisdom in the sense that we understand the great debt we have been released we have to understand who we are as the Lord's children, as, as his redeemed. And we have to be those who, who leave these sorts of things up to God. We press forward, exercising wisdom, discerning what is right and pleasing unto our God for his honor and glory. And we understand that the Lord is the one who will do uh, what needs to be done to make it right. And so as we look then at verses 3 and we look at verse 5 just very uh, clearly here, that again we have that reminder, keeping his word, and there's that reminder in verse 3, we know that we have come to know him. Verse 5, keeping his word, we know that we are in him. And so this knowing Christ and knowing he is our redeemer, that's the priority of what John wants us to understand, that we come to know our Lord. That's our focus. That's our orientation. And so this knowing the Lord is knowing the wholeness and the fullness of what the gospel is promising us. It's not a freedom to sin and to live any way we want, 
but it's assurance that we are sinners <clears throat> who have been redeemed in Christ. And we are sinners who have had a great deficit removed. And as we have had this great deficit removed, we need to go about our days orienting ourselves in this reality. And I would argue that as we truly understand the great debt that has been removed and taken away, we have uh, this life of abundance. And it's not something where we're going to want to pursue sin because we understand the greatness of our Redeemer and that we truly want to live out of gratitude. And so in conclusion then, <clears throat> how do we know that as we are called to trust in Christ, and walk in a manner of his ways, that we understand that this forgiveness and this continual asking of forgiveness is something that's assuring. Well, it's a reminder that we have to live our lives discerning what is pleasing unto the Lord. We are redeemed. And as we are redeemed, we have to understand the great debt, not only what we've done in the past, not only what we've done in Adam, what we've done in the past and what we continue to do. We're asking the Lord to continually remove those sins. And as we're asking the Lord to remove those sins, we're not asking for Christ to make another payment. We're trusting in that one-time payment. We're also asking for the grace to forgive and to move on. We're also asking for wisdom uh, to exercise and to manifest this mercy. And also have the wisdom to know how to proceed in terms of this age recognizing who we are in the Lord. And ultimately, we rest in knowing that our Lord will execute and bring about his, his judgment, and he will do what he sees fit. You know, you, you think about different scenarios where people talk about um, different heinous people and different crimes and different criminals, and if they repent of their sins, uh, do we celebrate that? And it is one of those tough things, isn't it? But the reality is, uh, by the grace of God, uh, it's something that we should celebrate, that repentance. And that's ultimately what this request is reminding us, that, that we want to see that repentance and that drawing near to Christ, and that we would truly have a heart that celebrates this reality of the Lord's redemptive mercy. And so it's, again, understanding who we are as the Lord's redeemed, set apart unto the Lord, seeking to live out for his name and his glory as his redeemed people. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urc. B-E-L-G-R-A-D-E dot com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.